Hey everyone, it's Tom. Thanks for joining us for the next episode of the Culture Eats Everything podcast. Today I spoke with Rashad Johnson, who's the CEO of Ardmore Roderick in Chicago. And Rashad's an African American, and he talks about his experience of growing up in the south side of Chicago and about his experience today and the whole world of diversity and inclusion. And what gives him pause and makes him concerned, but also gives him hope for the future. We cover the song Let It Go from Frozen and how that's a great lesson in leadership for all of us. And I know you'll appreciate as much as I did his candid thoughts about almost dying and what that means for his purpose in life. So thank you for joining us. All right, we got uh, Rashad with us today. Thanks for joining us, Rashad. You were just saying offline, uh, this doctor that had no bedside manner. Tell us what uh, tell us what he said to you and what that experience was like. Yeah, so I recently, um, um, I've always had a struggle with uh, my weight and my health. I've always, not always, but you know, more t- more recently, I've I've typically put myself last and not first especially as a bit you know came to my health and uh, it, it all kind of caught up with me uh back in april of this year um where um went to the doctor just wasn't feeling well and um found out that i had 95 percent blockage in the lad which is called the widowmaker artery uh so at 44 years old i had heart surgery um and uh on the way out the doctor, um, I think he thought he was saying something profound. Uh, and on the way out, he just, you know, the, the post um, appointment or whatever said, hey, you know, Mr. Johnson, you're very lucky. Why am I lucky? Well, most people don't survive this. And it just threw me into a tizzy. Um, I mean, I literally cried every day for two, three months afterwards. Um, trying to find out why why did I survive? Um, if most people don't survive this, why did I survive? Um, and 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 I'm not I'm still not sure you know what it is. I believe that 15 years ago when I started my company, I believe that that was my purpose was to start a company, be successful. Um, so I've done that. I've done that. Um, so now what are the next steps? Um, I don't believe that I survived in order to be a successful CEO. Um, been there, done that. Um, so the question is why, right? What, what, is, what, is the, what, is the, what did that set me up for in terms of my next purpose in my life? Um, and so I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to seek it and find it and um, understand it. And more importantly, to listen and um, and implement it. What's the what's the current version of it, Rashad? If you had to sort of take a stab at your purpose today, what would you say it is? Well, right now, I mean, I'm focused on my family, so it's to be, you know, the best father I could be, uh, the best son I could be, the best brother I could be. Um, I'm, I'm I'm divorced, so you know, kind of 
focusing a little more inward on myself to try to figure out, you know, um, try to figure out what my personal life is going to look like uh, moving forward. I've made a lot of personal sacrifices over the last 15 years, um, all in the name of the company and the business. Uh, and I'm not saying I regret it, but um, now it might be time to do something a little different. Um, so right now, I just you know, I'm focused on my family, uh, my friends, um, myself. Uh, for the first time in years, I'm putting myself first. Lost 30 pounds in the last four months. I got another 30 pounds to lose in the next four months. Uh, to try to put myself and my health first, um, as I continue to seek what it is I'm supposed to be doing with this knowledge of how to grow a business to scale. Um, you know, by the end of this, we'll be a hundred million dollar a year business nationally. I know that. Um, and considering I started it with an idea in my attic, you know, I've grown something to scale. So now that I've done that, you know, what is, what is the next step and what is the next purpose? And just, I'm seeking it, Tom. I'm not real sure, um, you know, what it is yet. It might be to teach, it might be to help others, to grow businesses. It might be to inspire um, people to get into my field. I'm just not sure. Well, I appreciate your honesty there. And I think a lot of folks can really benefit from that because, you know, CEOs in particular, I know when I was one, you know, you have to, you sometimes feel like you have to put on this bravado or this strong image, you know, that we have to have all the answers. And um, I love that what you're saying is, I'm wrestling with that. I'm wrestling with what, what's, what's, what am I still on this earth for? You know, I, I almost lost my life at age 44. Um, and I can't tell you how many CEOs that we work with and other leaders across the country who are 64 or 74, and they still haven't really figured that out. Yeah. So what, um, as you think about this, this journey over the last, you know, 15 years um, from a attic to a, multi-million dollar nationalization working with uh, a lot of large, large organizations, airports, schools, uh, very impressive growth. What, what do you attribute to success as a leader? Um, well, I mean, there's a book, you know, uh, the book that a lot of people like to talk about is what got you here won't get you there. Um, but it's so very true. Um, who I was, as a person and as a firm in the first three years of the firm, who I was in the next five years of the firm, who I've been, you know, in the last three years of the firm has been an evolution of Rashad. Um, and I couldn't be who I am today, the first three years of the firm, it wouldn't have worked. Um, I had to be where I was when I was there. Uh, so I think one of the things that you have to do in terms of um, success on running a business, especially long-term, is um, understanding how and when to adapt, understanding how and when to change. Um, I went from having a need to do it all to now having a need to find people to help me do it all. <laughs> and that's a, that's a tough change, it's a tough change um, because no one will ever love the firm the way I love the firm. 
Uh, no one will ever have to sacrifice the way I've sacrificed for the firm. Uh, so it takes a level of trust uh, that I had to grow into in order to get the right team and the right staff in order to take this to the next level. And quite frankly, we're still adapting. Um, I mean, who we are today may look drastically different than who we are in five years from now. Uh, so I'm open to a lot of that, that, that change as we continue to grow. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, you know, that's intellectually easy to understand. I think that whole idea, a lot of CEOs know in their, you know, in their brains, but emotionally they're unable to, to do what you've done, which is to evolve as a leader and to, to let go and empower others. So for those leaders out there who are, uh, with you they get it intellectually but they can't do it what would you say to them i have a daughter her name is Layla. and when she was a kid one of her favorite movies was frozen and the key song the the the, the staple song in there is let it go let it go tom the ceos we got you gotta let it go you gotta let it go um, trying to control it all and trying to make sure that it's perfect and trying to make sure it, it, you gotta let it go. You gotta let it go. And I know that that's, and that's not here, right? That's all here. Um, I still have some problems where I might dig into the weeds on something and my team is like, dude, why do you care? <laughs> You're never involved in the project, you know, this much, but I'll, I'll go deep in the weeds on something. And there's no real rhyme or reason to it. Uh, and then I have to be reminded that, um, you know, I think it was Steve Jobs that said, uh, you don't hire good people in order to tell them what to do. Gotta let it go. Mm -hmm. Gotta let it go. Yeah. And I yeah. still struggle with it, admittedly, but you gotta let it go. Well, it sounds like you've got a team that's willing to to, to challenge you, you know, to, in a good way, in a productive way to say, uh, what's, what's going on, Rashad? Why are you, why are you diving into the weeds on this one? So they're, they're there to remind you of your bigger commitment, which is to let it go. Right. Right. And you don't, you don't, you don't let it go haphazardly. You don't do it in a very irresponsible way. Uh, it took some time. Uh, I have some very good and qualified people that it took time. It took time to get to trust and know and, and nurture and coach and be coached um, my executive team in order to let it go. <laughs> Three years ago, when, when I first, you know, brought in some of these executives, I, this, you could have told me, Rashad, let it go. And I was like, whatever, it's not gonna happen. Like, I don't even know who these people are. Uh, and it took some time to get there, but uh, it, 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 we got there and we're still getting there. And, uh, you know, you have to make sure that you have the right talent and the right people to do it. But when you do and you finally decide to let it go and then you realize that you've done a great job, A, identifying the team, B, supporting the team, and C, giving the team the leeway and uh, power and responsibility to, to lead without you, uh, it feels amazing when you let it go. Yeah. And you've got some, obviously we've had the, the pleasure of working with you and your executive team. You've got some wonderful, wonderfully equally committed people to a much bigger purpose. You know, that it goes beyond 
paycheck goes beyond their ego, uh, allows them to uh, to see the bigger picture and what you're out to accomplish. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Talk about your your 2025 vision. Yeah, so um, three years ago, I uh, acquired an engineering firm and I was having a discussion with someone uh, and I said, um, they looked at me and said, you're probably one of the you know, top 10 largest black owned engineering firms in America. And I kind of scowled. And the guy looked at me, he was like, you should be proud, why aren't you proud? I was like, you know, it's 2017, it was 2017 at the time. And the 10th largest engineering firm in America has 25,000 employees. But the 10th largest black, that's 200, not even 200, not even 1%. And I kind of got to the point where I was like, that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. I'm not happy being the 10th largest black. Um, so in that moment, I said, what do we need to do to become a national engineer? Because um, I can't name them. There's a lot of regional ones. And there are a lot, and there's some firms bigger than me uh, who do what we do that are African-American owned and operated. Um, but none of them considered their national national footprint. Um, so we had this discussion and said we're going to be national. So we decided we're going to be national by 2025. And we brought together our strategic planning committee and our team, and we came up with a strategic plan. And um, we are actively, actively working towards uh, being a national firm in 2025. And how are you since that uh, first day three years ago? How do I sound? What was the question? How are you guys doing so far? How are you progressing? You know, we, um, from a uh, 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 size perspective, we've grown tremendously. Um, we're, we're winning some of the larger contracts and getting the firm's name out there, um, which all the national firms have name recognition. Uh, so we're growing our name recognition and our presence um, but the biggest thing is that if you really want to grow into a national firm and have the name recognition, you got to do good work. And in my field, the only way to do good work is to hire the right people. Because uh, we, we sell service, we sell brains, is what I say, right? Um, so um, we've been very deliberate and intentional on bringing in the right people uh, for it. I just recently had a, um, you may have seen it, I was on um, uh, ABC 7 News here in Chicago. And we were talking about um, uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, it's the big buzzword now, right? Because of all the racial inequity uh, that that people are finally seeing. I mean, those of us who are black, we're all kind of like, welcome to the dance. It's you know, <laughs> this isn't anything new to us. We um, are finally figuring out that it's new, but. Uh, it's not new to us, right? We've, we've been experiencing this for years. Um, but, um, you know, we're very intentional as a firm about bringing in and recruiting people of diverse ethnic backgrounds, sexes, uh, sexual orientations, um, uh, ages, um, backgrounds. I mean, we're very intentional about making sure that we are providing opportunities for people who may or may not have had the opportunity. Um, 
I'm a perfect example. I got kicked out of college twice. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to get a college degree. South side of Chicago. Um, so, so everything was stacked against me and I had every reason and right to stop and to give up. And, um, but somebody took a chance on me, a chance on me when my grades didn't deserve that I got a chance, right? They took a chance on me. So, um, you know, we look at, we look at the character of people much more than we do, you know, just the stats. We look at the stats too, but more than just the stats. And, and we use the character of people in order to give people chances that ordinarily would not. And the goal there is to, um, you know, have a good, diverse and inclusive culture here at Art Moronic. And quite frankly, I think it's what's, what's been critical to our success. Um, we have over 60% of our firm uh, is composed of people of diverse backgrounds. Now, obviously, diverse backgrounds is um, ethnic backgrounds, uh, sexual backgrounds, um, sexual meaning man, woman, um, and then sexual orientation. Uh, so we make it we make it a point. Um, if you have two equally qualified individuals, we're going to go for the diversity. Um, now, granted, uh, you know, some people feel as though in order to diversify, you have to lower your quality. We've not seen that at all. I actually, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think you can diversify and be inclusive as a culture and get better quality, not just maintain it. Um, and like I said, in, in, you know, in, in the article that I did earlier, we're walking testing to that. So um, I think a large part of it is just intentionality. You got to be intentional about it. And, and how do you do that? I think most of the world gets the, the idea of diversity. It's, it's sort of like a fruit platter, right? You've got all the different fruits, all the different, you know, uh, represented in that platter. And that's a that's a numbers game. You can do the percentages right within your company and watch how you're growing and improving and and, and hiring diverse candidates. But how do you do the inclusion part? You know, how do you how do you actually make people feel included? Yeah. So um, you know, we have the unique um, the the unique situation that the president and CEO is. African American, um, and I don't run. From it. That would be you. Yeah, uh, and I don't run from it. I don't hide it. Um, we, I encourage, you know, the discussions on race, etc., uh, and the hard discussions on race. Um, but more importantly, I recognize that engineering and STEM and architecture and construction. Um, is traditionally not uh, very sought after um, by people who look like me. So the people who who are coming in from diverse backgrounds, um, we make sure, and, and granted we do it for all of our employees, um, but I make sure that they have the training that they want to do to take their career to the next level. We make sure that we uh, open it up to um, whether or not it's technical training or non-technical training. The biggest piece of, of, of especially in a technical organization, uh, the worst thing that we do as engineers is we take our best engineer and we make them management. Mm -hmm. If you're a really great engineer, you probably suck at management without some sort of management skills 
or training or something to kind of help you soften it. Because as engineers, we're very much um, so so. Um, you know, we've been we've been trying to identify people, and if they don't ask for it, we'll offer it. Hey, you know, there's this seminar over here, this class over there. I think you should you know consider um, taking some of these classes, etc. Um, but even in our executive team, um, we're very diverse uh, women. Um, uh, ethnic backgrounds, etc. Um, I'm the youngest by nine years on my executive team, uh, and and it's been, you know, I think our our inclusion in that area has been um, helpful to us. Now that said, uh, we still struggle. Our director level is 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 very much not diverse and inclusive as I would like for it to be. Uh, so we are actively seeking. Uh, and actively training young people to be able to step up into some of those leadership roles um, so that we can, you know, walk the walk, walk the talk, walk the talk. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's so much in what you just said, but one of the key points that I want to highlight is you're being very intentional about it, you know, that you're, you're, you're taking this on in a very direct way, um, which is 90% of the battle, I think. You know, I often say, uh, a friend of mine was asking, you know, how do we, you know, how do we diversify uh, when all of our applicants are, you know, you know, we only can, I said, no. So here's the thing. If you are fishing at a trout pond, you are going to catch trout. You can't fish, you can't set up shop and fish at a trout pond and be mad that there's no sea bass in here. I can't believe I can't get any salmon. All I'm catching is this trout. That's because you've set up shop to fish at a trout pond. So you should not expect anything else. In order to diversify, you have to be intentional about going to fish in other places. And that's an intentionality. That's a decision. That is a, that is a let's make this decision to go to this historically black college and look for technically qualified people. Because if you're looking at, you know, all of the engineering schools in the Midwest, the vast majority of them are not going to be of diverse backgrounds. And the few that are, are being sought after by every other firm that looks like you that's in the Midwest or in the Southeast or in the West Coast or whatever the case may be. Uh, so you have to look around in some different places and go and fish somewhere other than a child pond. And what you find. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So if we were to go up a level or two here, you know, uh, out of your company and at a more societal level, um, what's your take on this moment in time? You know, this this not just the the pandemic, but you know, this this time of a lot of attention being given to diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, you know, what's your take as a as a black CEO who's in his mid 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 forties? I'm not sure you want to record the rest of this, but I have very <laughs> strong opinions about it. Um, if I'm honest with you, I think a lot of it is lip service, um, and I say that because this isn't new. This isn't new. Um, police brutality. Um, killing of African-Americans, innocent people, it's not new. 
it's just being recorded for the first time. And it's making people who don't know about it very uncomfortable. Because even though you hear about these things, to see it happening over and over and over again with very little change, um, it starts to bother you. Um, the problem is, as Black people in America, we've been seeing this over and over and over again for decades. It's just recently gotten to the point where others are now seeing it and are being uncomfortable with it. Um, so I'm hoping that this time um, will allow us, and, and, I, and, I think, and I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting time because, because of the pandemic, everyone's at home and everyone can focus and, every, and they can't be busy with their lives and traveling and entertaining and doing things for the first time, they're sitting down, they're watching this on the news with their kids because we're not in school, right? And, and now kids are asking questions and now parents are having to answer questions on things that ordinarily they would be too busy or they're kind of gloss over. So I think the pandemic kind of set the stage for this to be front and center and for people who are not discriminated against to have to deal with it. Um, so I think they both work hand in hand at this very interesting time. Um, I wish I could tell you that um, I think things are gonna get better and great, but I think it's, it's similar to diversity and inclusion. I think that it's, it has, it's a decision. It has to be intentional. And in order to make that decision and be intentional, you have to first recognize that there is a problem. I think there's a lot of people who don't look like me who haven't still figured out that this is a problem. I think there's a lot of people who have figured out there's a problem. And I'm hoping that those will be able to you know, convince others, et cetera. Um, but when you have conversations around hey, we want you to stop killing us. And then they say, oh, well, black people kill black people all the time. Mm, the difference is Johnny who kills Mike over here goes to jail for the rest of his life within 30 days of the crime happening. And now you've completely demolished that family. Meanwhile, when officer so-and-so does it, he gets administrative leave and he may or may not lose his job. And it's on camera. Well, you know, we got to figure out how to look. It, this is all great. Uh, well, we're going to get rid of Aunt Jemima. We didn't ask for that. We asked you to stop killing us. Oh, well, we're going to we're going to, you know, give you more. We didn't ask for that. We asked you to stop killing us. Well, you know, uh, how about we um, we're going to give you more corporate board positions. That's great. But we didn't ask for that. We asked you to stop killing us. Right. Um, so so obviously, no one's coming up with the basic understanding um, that, 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 I mean, frankly, that, that Black Lives Matter, right? Um, I'm not a huge fan of the organization, to be very honest with you, uh, itself, but I understand and I believe fully in the slogan, the slogan that Black Lives Matter, because for years, we haven't. I would venture to say, for the vast majority of the history of this uh, country, we haven't. We haven't. I had a town hall um, 
uh, with my with my firm, uh, all 200 people. I think 140 of them showed up, and um, I opened up the conversation by asking, "How old were you the first time police pulled a gun on you?" You should have saw the shock on people's faces. <laughs> pulled a gun on me? What are you talking about? I said I was 17. About 20 other people answered. I'd say 18 of them were black men. The fact that you could answer the question in the first place is a problem. It's a problem. I told them as CEO of the firm, I get pulled over by the police. I fear for my life every single time because there's a good chance they don't know I'm a CEO. And even if they did, all they see is a black man in a car that's potentially a threat, not realizing that I'm the least of your worries. I am the least of your worries, officer. <laughs> but they don't see that. They see a black man. Um, and, and even though we have a lot of people, both in society, et cetera, that all say, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a racist. I understand and believe that. But this country won't change until the non-racists turn into anti-racists. It's two different people. A non-racist is someone who says, hey, I don't, you know, I don't subscribe to that. I don't do those things. I believe in this and that. That's great. But if you're in conversations with people, other people, where they start to say things and do things, et cetera, and you don't come in and say something about it, then you're just, just as much part of the problem. An anti-racist is then someone who's going to say, that's unacceptable. In a circle of people who all look alike, that don't look like me, someone to come in and say, I'm not going to let you talk like that. That's unacceptable. That's not going to be what we're going to do. And until those non-racists turn into anti-racists, I don't see anything changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some powerful thoughts. And I remember you sharing a story, Rashad, about driving through the, uh, the back country of Florida. Um, yeah. Uh, why don't you finish the rest of that story? That was the weekend that we had our retreat. Mm -hmm. uh, we were in uh, Marco Island, Florida, very well-to-do, ritzy area, hotel. It was very nice. I had a friend in Miami, about two miles away, uh, two hours away. So I drive to go and see her. And um, for about an hour of this trip, now think about police and jurisdictions, et cetera. The fact that this cop could follow me for 60 miles in the first place is interesting because I promise you, he was not in his jurisdiction 60 miles away. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But I got on this road. It was a very small road leading from in the back backwoods of Florida. And police officer followed me for an hour. And within 10 minutes of me noticing, I got on the phone with my vice president, uh, Frank, who I, I say my vice president, but I call him my friend. I got on the phone with my friend. And I said, Frank, I need you to stay on the phone with me uh, for the next hour. I need you to stay on the phone with me. Or, or I didn't answer for the next hour. I said, until, until this cop leaves. And he stayed on the phone with me for an hour because I was literally afraid that if I got pulled over on this little bitty little road in backwoods of Florida, that I might not make it back. I might not make it back. Um, the fact that I had to make a phone call because I was worried about my safety. And at the time, was that 2018? 
I think it's ridiculous. Coming from one of the most well-to-do areas in the country, um, it's ridiculous. And, and, and in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have done anything different. Uh, I needed the, the safety and comfort of knowing that if, if I did get pulled over, that um, I was going to have some sort of accountability, some sort of help, somebody to, to know where I was or what I was doing, et cetera. Scary. Yeah, it's a powerful, powerful story. Um, so you, you said before that it's a lot of lip service. Um, I'm curious, you know, if you're, if you're a bit um, understandably jaded or a bit uh, pessimistic, right? Um, what does give you hope about this moment in time? Um, I, um, I participated, uh, not very many people know this actually, I participated in a, um, one, of the, one of the rallies, one of the marches uh, in Florida actually, um, in Orlando back in May, uh, right when all this was happening. It was happening right outside of, of my condo. At first I said, you know what, I just want to go downstairs and just kind of, I want to kind of feel the vibe. I want to see what it is. So I, I, I went downstairs and got on the street and I was overwhelmed. And I said, you know what, I'm going to walk with some of these people and just talk. And what gave me hope was that I'd say 40% of the people, two out of every five, were not black people. Hmm. Um, maybe even close to 50-50 were not black people. Um, I think the only way this is going to change is if people who are not African-American are going to help to change it, both within themselves and within their circles and within their politics and within the country. It's the only way this is gonna happen. Um, because as I said, if it's just a black people issue, we've been fighting this for decades uh, to a mostly deaf ear. So uh, what gives me hope is that a lot of the people that were marching for racial uh, justice and against racial injustice um, were not African-American. And there were a lot of young people, um, a lot of young people. Um, and, and I'm hoping that we don't have to wait until you know, generations kind of roll over, so to speak, in order to kind of change this. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, as that happens, some of those thoughts and ideas get lost with it. My father was born in 1942 in Mississippi. And some of the stories that he told me, um, I affectionately told him, I'm not sure that I'd be alive today if I was born in that era. Um, just because of who I am as a person, et cetera. And, 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 his, and his wisdom, he said, you would have survived because you are that person because I was able to go through that and make you the person that you are. Had you been born in the 40s, you wouldn't have been the strong person who can fight and have... Um, um, the courage to step up and stand up and say these things and do these things, et cetera. And I'm hoping that our generation, I'm gonna teach our kids to be even more courageous and to, to fight even harder for some of these things 
um, that we're seeing now. And they're going to look back at us and say, I can't believe you all let the police kill you like this. Like, there's no way I would do. Like, I'm hoping that this, you know, that, that we continue to pass it on. Um, and every generation gets a little bit stronger and a little bit more anti-racist. Yeah, it becomes a becomes a given. It's not something that we have to ponder. It's just right. a part of the new reality for young people, which I think, from my limited perspective, I think is true. I think um, the world's just getting a lot flatter and a lot more diverse, and yeah. kids kind of accept it that it is that way, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could go on for another two hours, um, but um, I appreciate the time, Rashad. I, uh, uh, I've learned a lot from you over the last, what, 15 years, I think, that we've- yeah, it's been a while. Um, I, I, uh, I love you, and, and thanks again for the time. Thank you, Tom. I love you, bro. Talk to you soon. All right, man. Hey, wait, before you hang up, one more question I forgot to ask. Um, yeah. You said, uh, I don't like Black Lives Matter, the organization. I was curious yeah. what that means. Um, the organization itself, um, you know, I've often said that, you know, for the first time in my lifetime, Black people have the microphone, right? We got the microphone. We got the microphone, there's a whole lot of people listening. The last time I think we really had the microphone was during the Civil Rights Movement, right? we had the microphone and when we had the microphone we had some key leaders who made a collective ask um and the collective ask came from the top and from the bottom and everywhere in between i think the black lives matter organization has not figured out what its collective ask is and as a result we're not going to get any sort of um results that, that, that we want to see because we don't have a collective ask, number one. Number two is, um, I don't think if you do a little history on the organization, I'm not sure that they ever really, they never planned to be who they are, uh, the organization itself. Again, the slogan means everything to me, right? Because I believe that Black Lives Matter. And whenever someone comes in and says, well, all lives matter, I say, you know what, if Black Lives mattered you wouldn't even be able to say all lives matter but the fact that we have to say it means that clearly all lives don't um so 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 to to, to kind of switch the narrative uh, on us i think is uh irresponsible at best um we're not saying only black lives matter we're saying treat us like you your own yeah uh, because because for the history of this company country we have not um so anyway i just you know i got issues with the org itself um, but the slogan, I full, fully and wholeheartedly believe that Black lives do matter. What would be the collective ask that you would have it asked for? Ah, uh, so see, I'm a business person, Tom. And I think that the collective ask uh, is a few different things. I think number one, it has to be, it has to start with education because education is what changes the economic and financial security of people. Um, I, born and raised on the south side of Chicago, however, I have education that's rivaled 99% of the very wealthy in America. Um, 
And that education, I think, has allowed me in certain areas to transcend my race. Other areas it has not, but in some areas it's allowed me to do it. Um, I think so you have to start with the educational system. You have to start with leveling that playing field. And then it goes into economic advantages. Uh, I think then it goes into um, economic empowerment in some of those communities, some of my communities that, that need it. Um, I think a lot of the problems get solved on its own when people have just as much to lose as anyone else. Um, those people who are, who are looting and rioting, I'm not out looting and rioting, and I'm just as angry as they are. You know why? Because I have something to lose. I have something to lose. Those people don't feel as though they have anything to lose. And until they get to the point in their lives or their careers or their finances or their family where they have something to lose, they don't have a reason. You give someone a family, you give someone a home, you give someone a place to stay, you give them someone security, you give someone uh, people to take care of, all of a sudden you have something to lose. And there's a good chance it's probably not going to be out there doing some of those things. Yeah. Or give them, give them the opportunity for all those things um, and let them step into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating point. All right. 